What up, Misfits? Welcome to the Misfit Heroes Podcast. My name is Chris, and together we are going on a journey. Misfits, let's talk about vision. I'm not talking about the Avenger. I mean your eyes. Many would say it's the most important of our five senses, and yet I bet there are so many things that you don't know about eyesight that would probably astonish you. And wouldn't you know, I've compiled a list right here. Did you know that the average optometrist sees over 600 patients per the World Health Organization? What about this? 75% of Americans, which is over 197 million Americans, use corrective eyewear. How about this zinger? Did you know that one in seven people around the world lack access to eye exams and glasses? Well, I'm lucky enough to have 20-20 vision, but my family isn't. And on a recent trip to the optometrist, we couldn't find a pair of prescription eyewear for under $400 before insurance. So what if you're in a third world country? These people throw their vision needs by the wayside. My guest tonight has an amazing story about the journey he's taken to create a new way of delivering eye exams and glasses, starting at just $3 per pair. His travels have led him to spread hope for those with vision issues around the globe, and you do not want to miss this story. Seriously, it's like an action movie. Hollywood, I can't believe you haven't jumped on this yet. Misfits, let's talk about the vision. Please welcome Pastor Greg Weens of Global Vision 2020. Playing the Misfit Heroes podcast. Well, Greg, welcome to the Misfit Heroes podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. Great. I'm glad to have you on here. I've, I've really been looking forward to talking to you. You know, before we get started, you know, Greg, I am a father to a toddler, so I'm doing my best to work on puns and dad jokes for the future generations. So, you know, first and foremost, let's just jump right into it. What is the vision for Global Vision? <laughs> Our goal is to get prescription eyeglasses to the 2.5 billion who have no access to optometry services for as inexpensively as possible in a sustainable way. I don't think a lot of people know how badly that our eyes and our vision are just, we have, we have so many problems that aren't talked about with it in the media. It's, it's just not something that you hear about very often. So what sort of got you guys into what you're doing with Global Vision? Well, actually, uh, vision is the number one uh, disability that is not currently being addressed in the world. And simple, spherical, single vision eyeglasses can solve 92% of the people's problems with that. So here's what I mean. There are two and a half billion people in the world who have no access to optometric services. One third of those people on average don't see well enough that they would fail the driver's test if they went for the driver's eye exam in North America. That is a significant portion of people whose quality of life and their ability to work and make a living is affected by their inability to see. So, what we've come up with is a project that solves 92% of that for approximately $3 American, where we can get those patients to our goal is 2040 vision. That means you pass that North American driver's test. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's amazing. So how are you getting these $3 eyeglasses? I mean, let's disclaim something first. You're in Canada. I'm in America. And you can make as many jokes as you want to about our healthcare system, okay? But <laughs> but how are you getting these $3 eyeglasses to people? Because it's kind of like blowing my mind. Okay, well, let, let me just step back and explain 
how we even came into existence. Sure. Our executive director, his name is Kevin White. He was a logistics officer who worked for the United States military and NATO. And he gave oversights to all the international development projects in Africa for a time. One of the projects that he gave oversight to was used eyeglasses being handed out in the field. Um, so that's the model where you give your old glasses into the optometry shop where you bought them from, and then they try to find somebody in the developing world who needs those glasses, maybe lines up with them. Now, here's a reality. Now, that's better than nothing, but really not much better. Here's what I mean. How many of those glasses are not in very good shape? How are they going to line up with somebody in the developing world uh, especially when you're dealing with access and cylinders, that's for astigmatisms or, or transitions. The, the chances of you having the right glasses that line up that give somebody 20, 40 vision or better is really, really low. So low for the fact that the vast majority of those glasses actually get thrown out in the field. So what I mean is you set up an optometry clinic using used glasses in Central Africa well over 90% of those glasses will end up in a landfill because it, just think about it. It's statistically impossible. And then as I was talking to an optometrist who's used this system just yesterday, uh, Dr. Vinny from New York City. Hey, Dr. Vinny. He was saying how <laughs> when he did this, he had a perfect example of he found somebody who had 20-20 vision with the glasses kit that he had pulled out of used glasses, and he was ecstatic about it. But the frames were pink. And this was a 50-year-old man. Uh, He's not going to wear those glasses. He was so happy that he found 20-20 vision. But this man is not going to wear glasses that make him look foolish. So the man ended up settling on something that was far, far from perfect. Almost barely helped at all when he had the glasses that did help him. So this is a replacement of that system. Uh, and we've come up with a totally novel new idea. So here's, uh, I guess, in, in a sense, how you can say how it works is we're, when you get glasses in bulk, it's actually relatively cheap when you're dealing with single vision. Right. Here's what I mean by single vision. They don't have um, bifocals added to them. They don't have an astigmatism correction added to them. They're just spherical correction. That's done in bulk and in mass. Frames that you get like these, they're the uh, sports frames that you buy at the store, good flexible plastic, good spring-loaded armatures. Everything is actually really, really inexpensive. You speak with a lot of passion about Global Vision 2020. Did you have any experience in optometry before working here, or how did, how did you get involved? Uh, no, I... I Initially read an article in National Geographic about this process uh, just almost 14 years ago and how Kevin White was working with this in Africa. And I reached out to him. Um, and the reason I reached out to him is I had the same dream three nights in a row that I needed to get involved. And uh, unbelievably, immediately, like within 10 minutes after I reached out to him, uh, he connected back and said, hey, I would love to talk about how we could work together. And uh, that begun the process of us trying things out all over the world together. So uh, a Mennonite pastor, which is what my job is, and a U.S. military, a Marine science officer working together. That's just 
you know, there's no other way to say it. That's just God at work. It's kismet. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Let's go back to the glasses a little bit. So I'm not sure. Do you have one of the kits with you? Could you walk us through like how this works? Yes, I do. Okay. So the whole process came together from Kevin White realizing that when a person puts on a pair of binoculars and they turn the focus dial till they can see clearly, that's actually telling you what your prescription is, but you don't know what it is. So here's what I mean. Uh, a, a fellow officer had taken off his glasses, put on Kevin's binoculars, turned the focus till they could see. He passed them back to Kevin, and Kevin's like, wait, I'm seeing your prescription now. What if I created a device that did the same thing but tells you the prescription? So in a sense, that's what this is. So this is a device where the patient simply puts it on. They turn the dial till they see clearly. And that tells you what the prescription is. I'll show you the lens taking it off. It goes from a negative, a positive six to a negative six. Okay. And going through the little slit in the tester, it goes by diopters of 0.25. And that tells the prescription. So in this case, I'm just messing around with it. And I'll have a green one on the left and a red four on the right. So I just simply grab from a lens box that I have right next to me, and I'll grab the correct lenses out of the lens box that correspond. So this is negative 1.25, and this is negative 1.5. You just simply take them out of the bag, Take out a corresponding. We have uh, three different colors of frames. I have two out here right now. And you just snap them in place. So they go in actually very tight. It's a very satisfying sound when you get them to snap like that. <laughs> yeah, it was a good click. <laughs> a good click. And actually, this is the biggest frustration that people have in the field. Uh, they can't snap them in because it's all technique. It's not strength. It's technique. Okay. <laughs> and all right. You've got prescription glasses. Wow. Just like that. That's that's amazing. It's kind of blowing my mind a little bit because when we go and we have an eye exam here in America, it's a big to do. It's like an hour long, and yes, they are using a, I'm sure, much more advanced equipment. But I mean. In other countries where they don't have access to the same level of healthcare systems like we do in more developed countries, I mean, this has got to be game-changing for them. This is. We've won many awards for this. We were the first winners of National Geographic's Chasing Genius, which is actually ironic because how I first read about it, it was just a very short write-up of, here's some interesting things that are happening in the world. And later on, when I came and became part of Global Vision 2020, it was myself that nominated Kevin for the award, and that really kick-started so many things. Uh, we won last year the uh, United States Patent Office's Award for Humanity for the uh, in the medical category because this gives access to the bottom 2.5 billion people with no access to optometric services. I 
love when I hear about people making a difference in a community that is not their own. They're going outside of their, not only their borders, but they're going around the world to do this. You know, I recently I watched a video last night, I believe, that said you guys were the first um, the first in the the government of Malawi, I believe, was was who you were talking about. And um, you guys were the first the first in Malawi to have government support where they didn't really have any type of health care. They like came to you. How did that play well, out? OK, so actually our starting point was. Uh, my first places that I go to are UN refugee camps. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, they've already got a low level of medical care that's already needed there. Because of the connections that we have with the military and the UN, it's actually easier for us to initially bring this in, get the permission from the medical team, and say, hey, this is a project that can be added on to already existing programs. Keep that in mind. That's our total model is not that we're starting something from scratch, but we're getting a powerful tool into the hands of the local workers. Okay, so we brought this into the camp and it was revolutionary. Let me give you an example of the time, first time I brought it in. So this was just over four years ago. Uh, we came in, I brought in about 3,000 glasses. I trained a team of 12, all of them refugees living in the camp. And Within a couple of days, they were the ones handing out all the glasses. Not me, them. After, on the last day I was there, a lady came to me. She had heard about the glasses kits, and she was a teacher. She'd, been, she'd fled from Congo about six months earlier, had lost her glasses while she was fleeing. She came in with two bad eye infections. And you can't test somebody until their eyes are healed up. She had to get some eye drops. I said, I'm sorry, I can't test you today. You're infectious. You need to go get in line to get the eye drops. Sorry. And she started to weep. She said, I heard you're leaving tomorrow. And I said, well, yes, I am. But this project is continuing on after I leave. I've trained this team, and they're going to be running every Monday and every Friday here at the camp, at the, at the medical office, eyeglass clinics. And she just was so thankful. Two weeks later, I got a picture of her with my team leader, Paul, who I'll talk about later on, just beaming. They had made her glasses. Since then, almost 30,000 glasses have gone out through that little clinic. Wow. So... Because of that, the Malawi government said, this is amazing. Why is this happening only in the camp? Can we bring this outside of the camp? So we connected up with the Optometry Association in Malawi, who we have their complete blessing as long as we don't like set up a little kiosk in the mall next to their optometry shops, which isn't our goal at all. Our goal is filling in the gap where there is no access. So in a nutshell... It's a nation of 18 million people. They basically said, this million and a half people, they have access. The rest of the country, we'd love it if you could set up clinics. And that's exactly what we've been empowering them to do. So you think about that. We have enabled and empowered and increased the amount of glasses going out to the bottom end while actually empowering the local optometrists who we're partnering with them. Because remember, we're able to help about 92% of the patients see 2040 or better, but their goal is 2020 vision. 
So we're always partnering up with the local optometrist saying, hey, there's other eye care issues that they can take care of. And they don't see us at all as a competition because we're working hard not to be competition. Yeah, I would assume you're essentially being marketing for them as well, for the most part. Oh. I mean, you're basically saying, this is somebody that wouldn't come here, come on in. <laughs> That's exactly right. And and in line with this, uh, we're using the same frames from the same manufacturers that they are. So these exact oh. same frames are all over Malawi. Well, actually, if you go to Canada, I can go down just the road, down the road. These are the exact same frames that are being sold. They, they call them activewear or athletic glasses. Why? Right? Because... They're the ones you're going to go wear playing soccer or, um, you know, tennis because they're sturdy. Yeah. If you get hit in the face with a ball, they most likely won't break and, uh, and, and they're light. So that actually works out really good because let's say we have a patient that comes into the refugee camp or now the rural clinics that we're running and they got 20-40 vision or maybe a little bit less but, but improved dramatically and we said, hey, you probably have an astigmatism. You have other eye conditions. But the optometrist, they can get you to 2020. So they can come back. They don't have to buy the frames from the optometrist. They can just simply get the lenses snapped in. And they're, and everybody on every side is loving it. Because it's not a proprietary product like that and the fact that they don't have to use your glasses, that's a big deal as well. A lot of... A lot of people would say, oh, well, this guy's just trying to sell people into his own glasses product, but that's not what you're doing. No, that's no, that's really quite... Our goal is to get access to the bottom percentage of people. In addition to being a nonprofit, you personally, you talked about it a little bit, you're, you're also a pastor. Yes. Um, to what extent has your faith sort of played into this organization as well? I mean, I, I heard that you're, you're basically extending the kingdom of God with um, with with this endeavor as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Well, this is just a, a natural outflowing of my faith in a way that I think we're commanded in Scripture. So um, Jesus' brother James says in James chapter 1, verses 27, religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted from the world. I look at this as a direct, this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to look after the orphans, the fatherless, the poor, the oppressed. James goes on to say in chapter 2, suppose a brother or sister is without food or clothing. In this case, I say glasses. And one of you says, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that faith? In the same way, faith by itself, when not accompanied with action is a dead faith to me this is me as a pastor having an actual actual living way to live out my faith all the while all the clinics that i give oversight to with our denomination the mennonites all the money goes back into that community so they can make a living. That's a beautiful thing. You know, it's, it really breaks down borders. It's, it's very surprising. Like I said, it shouldn't be surprising, but it is. And I love the fact that you all started this nonprofit. You know, I recently, we, we spoke a little bit beforehand and, you know, you're also, you're, you're about to go on another trip to the Congo and, 
are you able to tell me a little bit about what's going on with that and what your plans are for it and how that sort of came to pass, your upcoming trip to the Congo? Well, okay, so next week I leave uh, for almost three weeks to be in Congo to help relocate, repatriate 20 family, twenty people, uh, two extended families back to Congo. So here's a couple of things you don't hear about in the news. We often hear about wars and events that are happening in the Western world. We hear lots about Ukraine, and it is tragic. But, but the biggest war that's going on in the world right now is actually in Africa. Over half a million people have died in Ethiopia in the last six months. Uh, wow. The biggest war since the Second World War in terms of deaths and um, people being forced to flee as refugees is what I would call the Great African or Great Congolese War. Six million people died between 1995 and 2006, and perhaps 25 to 30 million people have been forced to be refugees. Okay, so the refugee camps that I go into, and I'm speaking about Malawi specifically, but I'm working with other ones as well in Zambia and in Zimbabwe. Um, but I'm going to speak about Malawi right now. In, the ones in Malawi are the ones that we've had the most success with the clinics, and During COVID, I was able to keep the clinics running. Now, it was really tight. Here's what I mean by tight. Uh, The money stopped coming from the UN to the refugee camps to help feed the refugees. So it dramatically decreased. So it went from approximately $2 a day was being delivered to refugees. It came in usually one-month lump sums. But that's how people ate. During COVID, due to everything being thrown in upheaval, that dropped to, on average, 40 cents a day. Wow. Do you see where we're going? Yeah. Famine in the camp. In that camp that we're talking about in Malawi, it was one of the worst places I've ever seen in the entire world. When I visited there during COVID, because I got exemption for status for this is considered an essential medical care, it was really weird to fly on an airplane where it's completely empty. And a whole bench to myself in coach. It was awesome for sleeping. A weird place to be with travel. Uh, no lineups at the airport at all. Yeah. The camp became a really, really horribly hard place. So our churches and our church members selling the glasses, using it to help feed their families before COVID, increased their standard of living dramatically. So, so here's what I mean. They went from two meals a day to three meals a day, you know, what we take for granted. Protein every single day for one of those meals, maybe even a chicken once a week. You know, all things we take for granted. Incredibly important during COVID because all the money from the UN, or not all, but a big part of it dried up. They, the people in the camp went from two meals a day to one meal a day, almost no protein. Our people went to, from three meals a day to two meals a day. It, it was horrible. The, the, when I was there, they said that they estimated that 15% of the camp, with a camp of 55,000 people, had starved to death that last year. Oh, my gosh. So over two years, 30% of the camp died of starvation. The only people group that wasn't starving were our people because they were literally living off of eating what they made from the glasses. Now, they didn't do well. They all got thinner. They all got more unhealthy because they weren't eating as much healthy food because there was so much less 
to purchase, but it was enough to keep them alive. What we came up with that time was we said, hey, is there a way to start getting some of our people out of the camp? Can we start sending them back to Congo to safe areas? The war in the area they fled from, uh, it's in it's the region of Goma, is still unsafe. Uh, they've got three things going against them. Goma has an active volcano that's blowing up. They've got Ebola. Oh and the war is still simmering. It's not a safe place to go. So we looked at where's the area that we could send them to. And the area we're sending them to is what's called the Copper Belt, about 1,200 kilometers away, that has the best economy and the most people who have the finances to buy glasses. And in the region of 4 million people, there's five optometrists. Wow. We've relocated 20 people to Congo, and we're starting up clinic next month where they're going to be selling glasses to our first group that we're selling to are the people working in the mines. They're the people that have a job. So we're specifically first going after the truck drivers. Why? Because there's about a third of them that need glasses that have no idea that they need glasses or have any accessibility to glasses. And that's where we're going to be starting off. So we've just recently sent 20 of them back to Congo, 10 adults, 10 children, with the hope of this growing, that we can send hundreds back. Well, yeah, you do kind of need to see when you're driving. I do agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm hearing you say all these things about an active volcano and all this war. I mean, these trips, they seem kind of dangerous. I mean, is there going out there, do you sort of take on this understanding that there's significant risk to yourself? You know, I, I always... I know there is. I have really good people on the ground that know how to keep me safe. I mean, the one time that I felt unsafe was last time when I was in Malawi in the refugee camp. Uh, We had come in. I thought I was going to work in the refugee camp for the trip that I was there for 10 days to, you know, just make sure everything's running well and organize things well. Um, But after one day, I actually, we had to leave. I couldn't come back. Um, As we were in the camp, I was mobbed. And uh, what it was, was all the other people in the camp who knew about what we were doing as Mennonites, uh, they they started shouting out my name, saying, Greg Weens, you can't just help the Mennonites. You have to help us too. And and, I want to make it clear. We want to help everyone. But there's only so much one person can do in, in one situation with one tool. So we were helping our community beforehand, and we were trying to help the community as best, but I couldn't come back into the camp the rest of the trip. Why? Because it wasn't safe for me. And that comes with that safety side. Uh, It wasn't just unsafe for me. It was unsafe for our own refugees that were living in the camp. That's where we came up with the idea, we need to relocate these families back. But So there is definitely a danger and a risk. Where I go is places where my friends and connections in the U.S. military say this is a reasonably safe place to go. I'm not saying there's no risk, but it's a safer risk. They tell me the places I'm not allowed to go. I'm not allowed to go to Goma. Remember the place with the active volcano, Ebola, and simmering war. They said, Greg, you're not allowed to go to Goma. (laughs) Well, you know, stay away for a little bit, maybe later. Well, and, and that's actually one of the interesting things. We actually have some of the young people in their 20s have gone back and they're, right, and they're running an eye clinic there. 
that one is in itself just remarkable. They, they grew up as toddlers in the refugee camp, and they've come back with eyeglass kits that I fundraised for them and are selling the glasses to the military who is trying to you know, bring about peace, maybe not always in the best ways, but do you know what I mean? And they're saying, great, this yeah. is far safer than it was in the refugee camp. And yes, everything's relative, right? They, they can say, where it's not safe for me to go to Goma, but they're like, this is much better. They said, Greg, after 9 o'clock, the police, uh, the army said, if you're out after night, after 9, we'll shoot you. They're like, this is great. We don't have to worry about anybody breaking into our house. <laughs> it's all relative, right? Because this goes with what we're doing. So my head of the project in Malawi, part of the reason why we've said we need to relocate is his house has been broken into so many times in the last year. What little food they have is stolen. We can't keep any money in the camp at all or it's stolen. Here's the tragedy. His daughters have been raped. Mm. Two of them are now pregnant. So us relocating them back to Congo, they just arrived. They're they're ecstatic. You know, like it's still not quote unquote safe by my Western standards. Can you imagine not living with the fear that somebody's going to kick in your door and take your cornmeal? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So this is part of the, the, the reason why we need to do this and, and why we've sent the core team that's been running the clinic in the camp. We're still running the clinic in the camp because that's how we're keeping so many people alive. But getting a place where they have citizenship and move them back to and start setting up other clinics in this region of 4 million people with four optometrists, that's, that there's just so much potential. I mean, that's just so amazing. You know, it's something that we definitely take for granted as well. I don't have any thought in my mind that this afternoon, I mean, granted, somebody could, but I don't have any thought in my mind that something like that could happen to me or my family. It's just not expected. And when you're dealing with somebody in these basically war zones that you're going into, um, that's just an everyday happenstance. That would give the average person anxiety, I think. (laughs) You know, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I have been anxious of going to bed lately. So yeah. if you if you think that I'm just made of steel, I'm not. Um, but I know the need. And, and I know these people. I love them. I want to tell you the brief story of Safari, who's our executive director for the Mennonite Brethren there, the Mennonite churches, and, and Paul. Um, Safari, uh, he was the son of a very well-known Mennonite pastor in Congo. So many people don't know the largest group of Mennonites in the whole world are actually in Congo. There are more Congolese Mennonites than any other group in the world. So they outnumber us in North America three to one. His father was a very well-known Mennonite pastor, and he was killed at the beginning of the war, 1997-1998. Safari, as a 17-year-old, was the only one to survive of the entire extended family. He hid in the cornfield. And he escaped at the night. That's the only reason why he survived. It took him three years to end up in Malawi, which is almost 2,000 kilometers away in the refugee camp. Lots of tragedy, lots of heartache, lots of hurt. As he settled into Malawi, he met up with three other pastor's kids who had very similar stories. And they decided to start a church. And it started off with four people in his little hut. I've sat in the hut that he started his church in. In the next three years, the church grew to about 200 people. And they were just 
thankful that God was connecting people back up, you know, people that had family connections or cousins or they knew of each other, and they were able to worship God together. Then one Sunday they heard a, a buzz in the camp. A man named Gilbert had showed up, and Gilbert was the head of the militia that had massacred Safari's family. Oh, my goodness. And everybody is like, we need to kill this man. And Safari, as the church leader, said, no, that's not what I'm called to do as a follower of Jesus. He went, found him, brought him into his house. He was at the edge of starvation, death. He had been beaten. Because that's how these things happen. You're now the head of the militia at this point, And now you're fleeing for your life. Yeah. He nurtured him back to health, led him to know Jesus, and helped find his wife and his surviving children himself. Gilbert lived with him for three years in that little hut. And Gilbert is now one of our church leaders that's staying behind at the camp to continue to help run the clinics. Wow. Because he says, this is where I'm called to be. That's Safari, who's the one who's now the first one to go back to Congo, to restart this project, to start bringing people back. Paul... He was a registered nurse. He's 47, 48 years old, same age as me. He had been a nurse, and he had just finished university. He had dreamed about becoming a family doctor. That was his goal in life. And Paul was the one that ended up taking on, in so many ways, the role of being a family doctor. He was the, had the most training of any of our Mennonites in the camp for, for medical background. So like, he did everything from catch babies to bind broken wounds to... Everything in between, as he had the highest standards of, of education for being in the medical field. And he was the one that we put in charge of the eyeglass clinic. Paul is a remarkable man. Brilliant. I have no doubt if he had been able to stay in Congo without any war, he would have ended up being a doctor. He's the one that his extended family, we've relocated them back to Congo. They're the ones that are starting the clinics to get this kickstarted so we can start bringing more and more people back. Um, and like I said, Paul's family's gone through some big heartache and hardship. Why? Because they're one of the few families that have two meals a day. That, that you know, if you break into Paul's home, there's going to be cornmeal. Yeah. There might be even some lentils or some beans. And uh, it's been a horrible, horrible place. Knowing that he's in Congo now with his extended family in a region they don't know anything of the culture about. It's so far away. And what are they doing? They're selling glasses. Huh. selling glasses to people who have no access. It's just awesome. That's an amazing story. I mean, really, that sounds like a movie almost. It's it's so crazy to hear this. <laughs> it feels like it feels like on days where I'm talking, it's just like, wow, this is this is unreal. Yeah, and I mean, your your passion behind this project is really quite endearing. It's so amazing to hear about things that we definitely don't hear about. Like you said, I mean, I had no idea that half a million people have died in the last six months in Ethiopia. That's, that's just a mind boggling statistic to me. We don't hear about that on, you know, on the news. Yeah. Are you mainly focused on Africa or are you also doing global vision 2020 here in Canada and America where you're at? Well, okay. So here's some of the things that have been interesting since I got on TikTok about, well, like the reason I went on TikTok is because it was COVID and I was bored and there wasn't as much to do. Uh, and it's, Blown up on TikTok. Yeah. We have had connections with really interesting people who called us. So, for instance, the Manitoba government, where I live in Canada, they approached me and said, hey, this is really, really interesting. 
So they're working on uh, legislation to make this accessible to homeless shelters, uh, to uh, settlement agencies, and to remote northern communities. They're working bipartisan with uh, all political parties, and they're working with the Optometry Association to craft legislation. So again, we don't want people buying the kits we just talked about and setting up a kiosk at the mall. That's not what this is for. But working on legislation so a registered nurse with training can use this for the people who have no access. Wow. Uh, So that's been really cool to see my own home province contact me and say, hey, how can we use this in our back door? And and I've got a number of projects where we're just in the very preliminary meeting stages about it, but I'm really excited. We've had great buy-in from the Optometry Association because they're saying, hey, we want to give direction on how to use this properly, which we want. And now we've had some states, um, some universities in the U.S. say, hey, we're really interested in talking about that one as well. So we're in some really be- beginning preliminary stages of seeing how this can be used for the poor in America. I foresee the same type of thing. Homeless shelters and prisons. That's what they're saying. Maybe those are good FDA trials to see where that can happen in the U.S. Now, I know this. If you don't know this, you need to know this. Anything that goes to the FDA goes really slow. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not going to be next week that they say, hey, this can go out to every homeless shelter in America. But they like the idea. Yeah. They're going to check off all their boxes. They're going to cross all their T's, dot all their I's. But hey, they're the ones that are saying this has some really good potential in those right settings. So what does that mean yet? I don't know. But I'm pretty excited to see where it's going. Yeah, I mean that's a very exciting proposition. You know, I think the uh I think that it needs to be addressed and I mean if you're if you're trying to deal with the FDA, I mean now I'm not going to make any comments about saying, you know, maybe if you had a check for $500 million or something like that, I mean, you'd be good to go. But hey, that's that's here nor there. That's here nor there. Yeah, yeah you know, with, within that, it, it sometimes takes the right people to pull. Yeah. And when you've got some really big name universities in America who have a heart for healthcare, that that has more pull. And funny thing, that all came out of TikTok. Who would have thought? It's both the best and the worst platform oh, in ways. You're totally right. That's how I found you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally right. It's like you're swiping and like, oh, that's amazing. Oh no, swipe faster. You know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how it works. That's exactly how it works. It reminds me a lot of you know, um, back in I don't know. I I I grew up in the in the late nineties and early two thousands when I was in college and stuff. And you'd be sitting there at I don't know if you were ever there at like eleven thirty, twelve o'clock at night, channel surfing, and you're just sitting there. Yes, you're not even totally, totally. really trying to find anything. <laughs> totally, and then you're like, wait. Yeah, exactly. And then and then you find, I mean, like I said, that's how I found out about you guys and you discover all types of new things. So it's like when you do find something, it's like a diamond in the rough that it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing, you know? Absolutely. Can I tell you how people, if they want to get involved, what they can do? Yeah, 100%. That's actually what I was about to ask you next. Are you a mind okay. reader? <laughs> so um, <laughs> if you are connected with a medical outreach this is a great tool to add to it, to any of the ones. So let's say you're a group of dentists going to Honduras to teach people how to do dental work. 
how many of those people you're going there to teach how to do dental work need a pair of glasses themselves? Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's the starting point. You test all the workers you've got. Right. This is a kit that weighs 50 pounds, 550 glasses, everything you need statistically based on a demographic from ages 12 to 92, including the tester, all the eye charts, everything you need for $2,000 American. That's one checked bag, a glasses kit that's good for a village of 2,500 people. This is how we've set this up and why when we say it's $3 a pair, it's amortized out that that kit comes out to just over $3 per pair of glasses when you're doing in that setting. And that's our entire model. It's not that we're setting up clinics individually selling. People keep saying on TikTok, sell me a pair of glasses for $3 online. No, that's not how we work at all. We get this as a kit to a local clinic that has the already set up credentials and they can get glasses out for as little as $3 per pair handed out in the field in an existing center and continue it running like that story I told you about where the teacher that came in that had her glasses lost as she fled, you know, she's come back and bought three pair of glasses over the last three years. Why? Because she's like, hey, I can go back every Monday and Friday and buy more at the same clinic. That's amazing. Now, when you're out there in these, you know, sort of low income communities, I believe you said earlier that you you train people that are on site as well. I mean, do they have to have any type of knowledge or background with this? Or is it really like, I mean, do they, do they need to be a doctor or can you teach anybody how to do this? Well, there, there does need to be some understanding of things. If I'm going to go for the gold standard, the family doctor, the nurse, and the high school teacher are my three best people to work with. Of course, outside of an optometrist. The optometrist is the gold standard, right? But those three have great concepts of what to do, whether it's from crowd control. That's where the teacher comes in. You always need that you know, 60-year-old woman teacher to keep everybody in line, right? <laughs> that nurse or that family doctor, because then they're able to deal with other eye conditions that come up. Now, a nurse's aide can do an awful lot of it. I don't just pull whoever off the streets, teach them how to do this, because you know when I do the demonstration, I'm showing you the end results. There's numerous things to get up to that spot. So somebody that has some basic education and medical background is the best person to work with. And teachers are already thinking in that mindset, even if they're not doing medical work themselves. They often are a really good combination of team together. Just speaking from a 10,000 foot view perspective, we've talked a little bit about what you are doing and how you're accomplishing these things, but what exactly do you guys need next? I mean, it, do you need, do you need volunteers? Do you need funding? What, what is the next big thing for global vision 2020? What do you guys need to get to the next level? Two things. I'll speak first for my clinic that I'm coming up so close and just over a week and a half going to Congo. Um, I have a hard time saying no to bringing people out. So here's what I mean. They're living in the refugee camp, and it's horrible. So instead of taking 10, like I initially said, I said yes to 20. So um, funds. I could totally use some help with funds because I can't stand the idea of leaving people behind now, hoping they'll come later 
when they're at risk of theft, rape, and murder. So I took more than I should have bid off. So um, I always, whenever I travel, I always have a contingency fund, you know, about 25% more than I expected to spend. So in case something happens, I spent it all on bringing more people. Yeah. So if somebody feels called to give towards this, uh, I everybody's gonna everybody's made it there. Everybody's got housing. I've got just enough glasses to kick off the program. So I've got three thousand glasses there. I with that was exactly the right amount for ten people. I now have twenty people there instead of ten. Um, if somebody feels compelled to say, "Hey, I want to help out with this," we can line you up with tax deductible receipts. Uh, if there's an organization that wants to put their name next to Mennonite Eye Clinics, sponsored by, <laughs> I will we'll be glad to do that. Um, and and in so many ways, that will actually help kickstart because I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I, 20 is my starting point. It was supposed to be 10, but 20 is my starting point of people coming back to this area. I'm genuinely hoping that this moves us into hundreds, maybe thousands. We have 2,000 people in the refugee camp that are part of our community. I would love to have every single one of them out and hand this to another group and say, you're now in charge of the clinics, this other group. So I can say, hey, look, I'm helping this group now because we all left. And I don't mean that we all left to get out of there, uh, good riddance, but maybe is good riddance, send them back home. So that's the number one thing that's right on my heart right now. The second one is actually long-term strategic planning that comes with this. Uh, right now, because of TikTok in part, we can't keep up with our sales. And what I mean by that is, um, as an organization, we have a float of, we order 25,000 glasses at a time from the manufacturer. There's a window to wait for them to come from the manufacturer in China or India or Vietnam, wherever we happen to be ordering them from. Um, and I last, because TikTok has made us so popular, uh, we got our order in for 25,000 glasses two weeks ago. They haven't arrived yet. They're all sold. Every single one of them. Wow. But we don't have more money as an organization to have a float of more than 25,000 glasses. So what we need is somebody who's willing to say, hey, I'm willing to come along with a low interest or a 0% interest loan. I'm meeting with a businessman next week asking for that, that says we can float 250000 Here's a couple of things that happens with that. Your prices drop the bigger the, the order is. So we could see a 20, maybe a 25% drop if we have that type of thing come in. That too, we will have the orders that people want as they go out. And this is only going to grow exponentially. And I mean that. Like, at some point, we're going to need to be ordering a million glasses at a time. I'm not exaggerating when I say the need is this great, that in just Africa alone, there's the need for 200 million glasses going out a year in this manner. Just Africa alone. Yeah. So, so we need somebody that says, I'm business-minded. Maybe I'm sitting on money that I've raised over my life, and this will still go to your descendants. You're still going to be able to... Um, to uh, you know, give this give this to your family, but we're able to use it right now to have the stock of order of glasses that's going to bring the price down and increase us to where we need to be, so that we can really really solve this problem in the world. 
Well, it's a fantastic plan, and I'm just really excited about what you're doing. You know, one more thing that I wanted to talk about we didn't get into earlier is this concept of holistic ministry Yes, that I heard you talk about earlier. You know, can you explain how the church is growing through your ministry in these other nations? Are people coming to Christ because of this as well? What we've done is we've actually freed workers in the church who work in the clinics to have a good job that has great interaction with the community. I want to make it clear. Everybody gets access to the glasses, no matter what race, you know, religion, creed, a tribe. Everybody has the same access to the same price for the glasses. And this gets people interacting with each other in a really positive way. Here's a great example of one in Malawi that's just blown everybody else's mind. But I really felt it. I'm a spirit-led person. Yeah, That means I let the Holy Spirit say, hey, this is where we need to go. I went to the police on the second trip I did and came to the chief of police, even though I was told by the team, we don't want to deal with the police. They're the bad guys because they're scary, right? You think about it. You're a refugee living in somebody else's country. The police are scary. I went to on Sunday afternoon when I said I was going to take a nap. So I lied. (laughs) And I went to the chief of police with my backpack. Shame, 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 pastor taking a nap. And I made him a pair of glasses. And I said, (laughs) I bet you a third of all of your police officers need glasses. And that police officer, 50-some years old, needed both reading glasses and a pair of driving glasses. What I mean is he was about a negative one. So his eyes weren't bad, but you could just tell. Like Looking off in the distance, he had, his eyes were worn out. He's like, this is amazing. Who are you with? And I told him who we were with. And then they showed up in the police cruiser with me later on, and all the team was freaking out. They're like, oh, no. What did Greg do? <laughs> and I brought all the police on Sunday afternoon, and we made them glasses. And they made the most amazing connections. They're friends and allies now in the community instead of fearful of each other. And and this just opens doors in ways you never, ever expected. When I talk about holistic ministry, this allows people who saw each other as enemies to now be friends And the police in Malawi have done more for us getting our name out in a good way than any other single entity in the country. And who would have thought of that except for letting the Holy Spirit lead in holistic ministries? Amen. Well, that is is a beautiful thing. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times doing this podcast, I literally, I see... I see scripture just played out in real life. It's really amazing to hear you say that. Well, I genuinely feel like I'm in Acts chapter 29, verse 27,000 or something, right? <laughs> this whole thing, it's its this massive undertaking that you guys are taking on. It just seems like such a large goal. Oh, totally. But I realize you have to start somewhere. Right. Um you know, do you have, do you have any advice? I know you said that TikTok is is blowing you up as well, but do you have any advice for someone that is trying to accomplish such a large task like that? Do you have any advice for them as to how to get started or best plan of action for you? I'd say a couple of advices and things. Um, Remember I've said I'm a Mennonite pastor. I'm, I'm working with us military and and you know, the police forces around the world, which is completely outside of the normal of what's, 
my community tends to work with. Sure. My first advice is when you're saying, I want to do something in the name of Christ to change the world, be willing to go outside of what you think is your normal. Yep. Yeah. You know, can I work with those people over there? Can I work with them? They're not in my normal. They are all coming in with the, the vast majority want to be used in a powerful way, whether they know it's in the name of Jesus or not. We're innately wanting to do something for the good. There are very, very, very few people I've met in the world where that person woke up that morning planning to do evil. Now, that's a totally different story. So willingness to come in with humility, find what you agree upon, and work yourself out from there instead of coming together and finding out what what don't we agree on and let that be the dividing point. So there are things that I have as personal issues that we are going to be different on. But I'm going to look for what we agree on so that we can bring about this change together in a positive way. And along the way, I might change some of your ideas. And along the way, there's going to be ideas that are changed about me too. Well, I think that's solid advice, whether you're trying to help somebody out or not. I think that's just the perfect way of looking at it. (laughs) It comes down to being willing to look for experts that are outside of your normal too. And and willing to take their expertise. Everybody slags the UN I talk talk about or talk to. But they don't actually understand how many of these people in the in the UN, especially in the medical category, they have really they're there for the right reasons. You can argue about a lot of things, find out what you have in common. That's where our starting point is. But a lot of these workers that are in the UN are there knowing that if they were in the public field, they'd be making more of a living, easier life. And uh, and it would be life would be a lot less complex. Starting off by saying let's work together and giving people the benefit of the doubts. That doesn't mean you don't you just accept everything that everybody says. No, I, of course I go through the lens of what does Scripture say to me. But starting out like saying who are the ones that we can work together and come with humility in it. That's a really really big part. You know, humility goes an awful long way to working on changing the world for the better. Like I said, I think that's good advice just for anything in in particular. I think that's good advice for even if you're not if you if you're just trying to make your way through the world, I think that's just the proper way of handling yourself. You know, I uh I know that you said you were big on TikTok. Um uh, what are some other ways people can find out about you? I mean, what's the what's the the best way of contacting you? Do you have a website or your social media profiles or any of that stuff? Our website is the best way to go you you can see all of our credentials are, were, are, were all peer-reviewed and clinical trials have been overseen and published uh, by Johns Hopkins University, New England College of Optometry, um, in partnership with University of Vietnam and, and University of Mongolia, uh, of, that this does work. Uh, we So going to the website shows you where all those links are at. It shows you how to order the kits as a partner um, and get involved um, so our website has tons of traffic, lots of good stuff, lots of news articles where it talks about this is how it's being used around the world. That's a great look. That is the, probably the best place that I can direct people towards. Uh, TikTok has actually done the best with driving people towards our website because our web traffic has increased dramatically. Um, other ones are we're published uh, by the International Agency for Prevention of Blindness. Those, those articles are all linked in, in our website. Uh, that's the wing of the United Nations for trying to help eye care. 
Uh, they're the ones that are really leading the charge to say, hey, this is something that we can do as a community to dramatically improve the lives of people. Because, you know, like I said, eye care is one of the biggest unmet needs. Um, did you know that a person who sees three lines or better on the eye charts for distance vision and gets the right pair of reading glasses who's over 45 will see a 25 to 40% wage increase in what they make in the next year? I did not know that. You mentioned your website. What is your website and what's your what's your social media handles? So uh, my, our website is uh, www.gv2020, the number, .org. And uh, the name of the organization is Global Vision 2020. And right now, our only real big media one is TikTok. Uh, you know, I'm getting about a million views a week right now. And I don't have enough time to add it to all the other ones that I know I need to. So, Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. Well, we'll put links to all that stuff down in the show notes, like I said, but we're winding down towards the end of every episode. I ask every single guest the same question, and I always get this look in their eyes like a deer in the headlights because I never prepare them for anything. So get ready. (laughs) But with that being said, what was the last goal that you completed and what is the next goal that you want to set for yourself? Uh, The last goal that I completed was I started the first project in South America in Peru. Okay. And we got our license for it. Uh, we have two young doctors in their late 20s who recently been licensed to set up an eye clinic right at the edge of the jungle. And the goal was to get all the licensing done in six months, and we got it done in five. Wow. And uh, they are now running clinic, and they're employing predominantly pastor's wives as the clinic workers. Um, which is just amazing to me. My wife is pretty pumped about that one. So that was my goal. And uh, I'm so pumped to go back to that area because it's right on the border with Brazil and Peru to go back next summer with a group from Canada to uh, expand the project and, uh, and, and meet all the people who are now working for me and with me. That's fantastic. I, I hope that that plays out well for you. That's that's really cool. I mean, that you're doing this all around the world and there's no, it, it's it's just free and widely available for anyone everywhere. And the fact that it's making such a massive impact in not only helping people with the issues that they're having with vision, but just growing communities as well and healing healing hurt. It's, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. I love what you're doing. It's really impressive to me. Uh, the next goal that I have is my, after that, that I'm shooting for is for 2023. Uh, this year will probably move close to 150,000, maybe 175,000 glasses. My goal is for 2023 to have a million glasses go out next year. Well, I believe you can do it. <laughs> I believe you can do it. And I hope that Misfits, I hope we can help awesome. any way that we can. Definitely go check out the link in the show notes and be sure to just check them out. I mean, it's 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 a very interesting platform. It's a very interesting idea that you have that you just basically came up with the idea of becoming everybody's eye doctor if they Amen. if they don't have access to it. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. Well, I love I love what you're doing. I I really appreciate your time coming on here. I think this has just been very fun and intriguing, and I'm excited for what's to come next for both you and the organization. I think that you guys are just doing fantastic things around the world. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, Miss Fitz, we did it. That's our episode. 
As always, I want to thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors. If you want to support any of the sponsors of this podcast, there are affiliate links on the Sponsors tab of our website over at www.misfit-heroes.com. You can also find links to all of our social media there, so be sure to follow us for immediate up-to-date info about the podcast. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to help me out, do me a favor. Hit the subscribe button down below so you're notified of new episodes as they're released, and make sure to leave a rating and review of the show on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Truly, Misfits, I love you. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, be kind, love one another, and be a hero.